Thank you for tuning in to Calm After the Storm, Survivorship and Other Stories with Amy Syed. This episode is brought to you by 15minutesaday.ca. Today, we are going to talk to someone who's got a harrowing story about survivorship and thriving thereafterwards. We do want to start by sharing a content warning. Information shared in our podcast can be graphic in nature. We do recommend you review the details of our podcast before tuning in. We appreciate you tuning in, and we hope that the story shared with you today is inspirational and helps you get through tough times that you may be facing. Welcome again to Calm After the Storm. Welcome back to Calm After the Storm. Today, we're going to be talking to an extraordinary individual by the name of Brianna. Brianna is going to take a few minutes to introduce herself, and then we're going to get into her declaration. Go ahead, Brianna. Do you want to just introduce yourself to us? Tell us a little bit about what you do today. Hi, my name is Brianna Cordero, and I am a human trafficking survivor, and especially my first time coming out and saying human trafficking. We usually say domestic violence, but it was a combination of human trafficking and domestic violence. I have a three and a half year old son as a part of my story. And now I work to help fellow survivors and I work on a board to help do policy changes and help make survivors navigating life after a little bit easier and trying to rewrite their story. That's amazing. And life after trauma. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Brianna, thank you so much for reaching out to me and for making it a point to share your story for the first time here at Calm After the Storm. So we are going to start this episode by, again, reminding everybody that we do have a content warning at the beginning of all of our episodes. Some of the things that Brianna will be sharing may um, result in you feeling uncomfortable or result in memories of experiences, as well as experiences you may be going through right now. The purpose of our podcast at Calm After the Storm is to really help individuals around the world get through hard times and to provide hope and show how surviving and thriving can happen for most. Without further ado, Brianna, we're going to kick off by, um, can you walk us through kind of what your childhood looked like? I know you said that you're the daughter and a daughter to immigrants here in Canada, but can you walk us through uh, what your childhood was? I have parents that immigrated here, but they pretty much grew up here. Okay. But a lot of cultures were the same, like similar, right? Like they didn't grow out of it. So, so they came to Toronto from where? Well, my mom's from England and my dad's from Portugal. Okay. But I grew up with a lot of my dad's side of the family because my mom didn't have a lot of family. So just a lot of things like, for instance, looking back, mental health was never discussed. But a lot of, I can see my aunt, my mom and my parents, they suffered a lot of it because they didn't have the access to the resources that we have now. Do you know what I mean? Like they weren't given the tools they pro- probably needed coming to a different country. Of course. So they came to a new country and they were assimilating. What I understand, I mean, because my parents are immigrants as well, um, there is a lot of change when you come to a new country. So mental health issues, whether they're there or not, when they come to the country, they can be exacerbated or um, they may have been living with mental health issues uh, that were undiagnosed because the diagnoses have changed over the years as well. 
Oh, for sure. And it's also like mentalities there, even though it's Europe, they're very old school and traditional brought here mm-hmm. and they were more progressive and were more, and it's great. We have more freedoms to choose and stuff. And growing up, I was blonde hair, blue eyed, and all my cousins on my dad's side were not. And I was often shut out because I did not fit into that. Growing up, I always was trying to fit in where somewhere I was supposed to already fit in, but I was never accepted. So I grew up from a very early age being bullied by all my cousins were older. So they were older between five to 15 years older. I was the first child born in a long time. So I grew up being very bullied a lot by a couple female cousins based on not being full-blooded Portuguese. And that is something I struggled with. I'll never forget as a little kid, I hated having blue eyes. I hated it because I was not accepted or I was told it was I was not pretty because I had blue eyes. And that's one of my earliest memories I have at five years old. And that was because your family just didn't have blue eyes my in the co- family and they like, were excluding Yeah, there you? was no one. Like my female cousins all had brown eyes. And I always thought, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not good enough. Maybe if I had brown eyes, they might accept me more. It started off with that and it became a snowball effect. I went to a very Catholic school where they taught you families love you and families will always take care of you and things like that. So I automatically thought, well, they're my family. Maybe this is how they're supposed to love me. Because yeah. I didn't have any, I didn't have any like role, female role models like to look up to. Like there's a lot of like really cool children's books now where like young girls can look up and see like really great women making differences in the world and look up to that. I know there, we didn't have that going. Well, I could maybe look at Michelle Obama or I can maybe look at different other people, right? Yeah. And have that other avenue of, being positive, like dynamic. That was my whole world at the time. And it was not a very positive experience. I became very self, like I had very low self-esteem from the beginning. As you went into your teen years, what did that look like for you when you were going to high school? Like what, how did you feel about yourself and what do you think was happening uh, within you? I definitely struggled with confidence. I also struggled with being true to who I was. Mm-hmm. I never really fit in in groups, but I wasn't exactly a loner. I didn't know the difference between a healthy and an unhealthy relationship. And I would not have boundaries because I was so wanting to be loved, like accepted, even if it was not a healthy friendship or not, I just wanted to be accepted and I would go to great lengths to do that. So can you start talking to me a little bit about your relationships with men at that point? I went to a Catholic school and it was very Catholic. And I always thought, you don't date till you get married. And I was like, well, I'm not going to get married at 17. Yeah. I'm not going to get married. Like, like that was like when you want to get serious. I didn't think people just dated for fun and stuff. It was, well, you date with the intentions of getting married. And you date with the intentions of having a serious relationship and having a future. And at that age, you're not thinking of that. It was not in my frame of mind. So can you walk me through when you met your husband? Walk me through how you met him and how you ended up seeing him in Washington. I was a nanny full time. I was 19. I was doing early childhood education. I had aspirations of being a kindergarten teacher, but I was very lonely. And I always wanted to build a family. So I thought I could do it all. And I'm like, you know what? Maybe I'm, I want that family and I want that love and acceptance that I didn't get as a child. And I didn't have any of that support. 
Well, I went online and I met this guy and he actually came to Canada to meet me. He was older, like by 10 years. I've got a bad vibe right from the beginning, but I grew up never trusting my gut. I grew up never really trusting that feeling where you're like, something's not right. Because I grew up with it not being a while, but never being able to speak my voice about it because my voice was never heard. Can you describe to me what seemed not right about the meeting or about this individual? Like, if you want to get really real, what 29-year-old flies to meet a 19-year-old who's supposed to have a great job, it's not realistic to end. It's just not like, not. there was no common sense about it. You barely, barely talked for like less than two weeks. You were already fine. You were already talking about marriage. And how was that? young and secure girl that so badly wanted that. So you met him online and then he flew in to see you after two weeks of just yeah. chatting online. And then yeah. he was already talking about marriage with you. Yeah, he wanted, and I want, and I'll be honest, I wanted it too. Describe to me what happened after that. I was very adamant that like he wanted me to stay overnight. And I was very adamant that you need two bedrooms because I'm not doing anything. So sorry, that was in Toronto that he wanted yeah. you to stay oh, at the hotel? Uh, Airbnb. Oh, okay. So he showed me there was one and there was a bunch of like really expensive gifts laid out. We went to a restaurant. I came home very dizzy. I don't remember much. You came home and you felt dizzy? Dizzy. Woke up in his bed the next morning. Okay. So, so do you feel that something was put in your food or your drink? Okay. Yeah. I didn't feel anything. I just felt numb. Like I, like I didn't process what was going on. I just went with it. So what happened after that? I was originally going to go to the States to meet his family. And I went and there was all these promises that were put in place. And I was very adamant that I want to go to school. I want to have my own place with you because his parents were living with him at the time. I want to have a career and still be healthy. I thought that I could have it all and it was in my head. Knowing that what I felt was so, so wrong. But you were young, right? You're still 19 years old. How long before you ended up going to meet him in Washington? That right out. It was only the first visit. Oh, so you went back with him. Okay. So what happened once you went back with him? It was just for, it was supposed to just be for a visit. I had a return ticket home. Okay. Because I was working as a nanny. I said I was going to visit somebody, right? And I had an argument with my parents, but I was just, there was a lot of hurt. There's a lot of resentment. My relationship with my parents were not the greatest. I definitely was very depressed in my teens. I was just like, whatever, I'm done. Like, even though it felt wrong, I was looking back, that girl, I wish I should, should could so badly give her a hug. And I wish I could so badly just tell her, like, you have so much potential and worth. Or I wish that I had somebody where I could have just talked to about this before I went. And help me kind of like process my emotions, but I didn't have that. So now at this point, you're in Washington with him and describe to me what starts to happen. We got married. As soon as you landed? Three days after. And I thought I was still under the impression that I was going to go to school and I was going to be able to be the housemate, but still be a good, like have something outside of it. Give me another purpose because I was in school prior. Two weeks later, I told him, are we going to, like, crushing it? And he told me he bait and switched me, which I didn't understand it. And he explained to me it's like a fish. It's like, you know, the bait for the fish, and then they come out of the water thinking it's food and what happens to the fish. He pretty much told me I was a fish. Okay, so is this... That there was no plans of me going to school. There was okay. no plans of me 
working. I was just going to be living in a house, isolated from everyone, being there with him. How did you feel at the time when you heard this? I broke down, but I didn't see a way to get out. So I kind of accepted it right away. And then I got pregnant really fast, like within three months. Within three months, you're saying? So yeah. once you were pregnant, I mean, what were you thinking this whole time? Were you thinking you were just going to put up with it? Did you think that you were going to make a plan to come back? What was happening? What was your thought process during this time? I was actually a little excited because it was going to give me something. And we got to remember, like, I was in early childhood. I love kids. I've always wanted to have a child one day. I was excited, but I was scared. Did I also feel like I kind of accepted that? There's no other light. Like, where was I going to go back to, like, if I had the chance? I didn't think I would have support a pin. So what happened as your pregnancy progressed? I was supposed to be there on a visa, but he never finished my application, like a fiancé visa. And we spoke to a lawyer, but he was constantly using, well, if you don't do this, I'm not going to file your visa paperwork, and you're going to be an undocumented immigrant. And because of that, I was not able to access health care. So he didn't want to give me proper health care. We were living at a hotel at the time because he traveled a lot for work. And I started bleeding. And I had an amazing hotel staff who I became friends. So we were living at that hotel for about three to four months. Okay. Who became like my friend that helped me get to a hospital. And I already had a prior hospitalization before, but he discharged me right away because I, like I was in the ICU at 12 weeks pregnant because I had a freak accident with my throat. I was on breathing tubes. Then the moment I got off of my breathing tubes, he took me out because he didn't want to pay the bill. So I went from 12 weeks to 24 weeks, already deemed a high-risk pregnancy with no prenatal care because he didn't want to pay the bill and he wanted to keep me undocumented. Okay. So what happened when you're, when the hospital staff, or sorry, the hotel staff took you to the hospital? They took me in right away. They noticed bruising on my legs. They did STI testing. They knew something was up. They also knew something was up by his behavior. He came maybe six hours later and they just started, like flags started coming into the hotel staff to the point where they would not leave him alone with me. And he was getting very angry with that. What happened at the hospital before he came that, that made them feel like you may be under duress? Other than the bruising, were you able to talk to anybody there? The way he acted when they mentioned the bruising, they mentioned it to him because I had bruises all over my legs. And they, he said, oh, she's very silly. She's falling everywhere. Well, I knew how I got those bruises, but he knew I wasn't going to say anything. Uh, sorry, what, what was he doing to you that was bruising you like that? Well, it was an incident that happened where I thought I was going to have the courage to leave. And it was like a week before it happened. And he threw all my stuff in the hall. And then he realized there were security cameras. So I was pregnant trying to pick it up and he pushed me down. That was the one time I tried leaving. So what happened after this incident? Like, I guess the hospital is aware now of the abuse. What was going on with you at this point? I didn't think I was going to be able to carry my son. I didn't yeah. think I was going to be able. At that point, I didn't think I would have been able to travel to go back to Canada, but that wasn't an option. I wasn't that bad of a shape. Like when they did the ultrasound on my son, like he was way smaller than he should have been. I was very malnourished. It's all on the hospital papers. Like 
and I had to um, get a colonoscopy. And what colonoscopy requires sedation. And he refused to let me have sedation because he thought it would hurt the child. Doctor showed him all the papers. No, don't worry. It would only hurt. And they heard him threaten me quietly that what would happen if I got the sedation. So I went to the colonoscopy with no sedation. So why did you need the colonoscopy? And I had ulcers in my colon. Like I was so malnourished. They heard him threatening you, like threatening your life at that time? Yeah. And then that's when I had social workers come talk to me. I had a nurse come talk to me who like looked at me. She's like, you know, I'm a single mom. I'm like, yeah. She's like, I can do it. I did it. You can do it. Almost like she was thinking, like hearing what I was thinking, right? She helped me make that call to my parents. But what ended up happening was the doctors made the call to my parents and um, my father bought my plane ticket home. Okay. So then you were able to return home at that point? Yeah. I had the hospital hired a cab for me to grab my stuff. They had the cab wait for me and stuff. And then they also had police know about it because he was in the whole, he came to the hotel room. First of all, he wouldn't, he wasn't giving me my passport to get back. So we had to get police to enforce it. Okay. Because he was refusing to give me my identification to come back to Canada. Okay. And then you were able to get your identification and the police escorted you to the airport? No, the taxi did, but the police were aware of it. Like they knew what was going on, right? So I flew back to Canada. So that's good, right? (laughs) You were back in Canada. You were away. Um, Did you return to your parents at that time? Yeah, I stayed at my parents. Got thrown into high-risk pregnancy in Mississauga. I was there every week. Very scared. I didn't know if I was going to be able to have my son full term. There was so much uncertainty. I didn't even know if I had the, like I was physically healthy enough to carry the children. How, how many weeks pregnant were you at this point? 25. Okay. So you're pretty early on in your pregnancy still. They've let me, they barely just let me fly. Like they were even talking, like my father and the doctor were talking and my father was going to drive down, but they said, you know, she can fly be careful and I got like special escort on a wheelchair things like that like if I waited two more weeks I probably wouldn't have been able to fly so so it sounds like you're in pretty rough shape at that time so can you describe the rest of the pregnancy to me and what was going on once you came back I always had suspicions of certain businesses um my ex was doing with other women like cheating and paying and I got that confirmed two days after I came back to Canada because he left Facebook on my phone. So I thought everything that I suspected was true. Okay. He never really contacted me. I never really contacted him. He assumed he was going to be there for the delivery. But it was in my head, it was, if you're going to ask, I'll ask, give you updates. But it was very difficult. He didn't. But it was very difficult because why do you care? And he was still under the assumption that I was going to come back. And um, I'll be honest, I let him on for my safety. Okay. So so he he was in touch with you? Maybe once every two to three weeks. Okay. But I was also very sick. He just thought, like, wanted me to finish my visa paperwork from there so I can come back to the States. But I just knew that gut I didn't want to. Okay. So at this point, um, when did you deliver your son? So my son was induced at 37 weeks. Um, I had him November 24th and he was very tiny. He was only five pounds. But he was healthy. He was eating and breathing on his own. Yeah, no problem. He had jaundice. And then after his jaundice cleared, he had a difficult time gaining weight. So we stayed in the hospital for about three to four days. It was like the easiest labor ever. I think the doctors were shocked 
doctors were very shocked that I had such an easy labor with everything I went through. Okay, well, that's amazing. And so what happened after your son was born? I guess you were living with your parents at this point? Yeah, and um, I filed for full custody. Okay. He filed for full custody too. And uh, when my son was 10 months old, I was granted full custody, supervised access. So, And I think a lot of survivors could relate that keep your friends closer, enemies closer. It's like not hearing from him for a bit would bring me up a lot of anxiety because it's like I don't know what he's up to. The connections and stuff he had, it was very, very scary. And that's also why I feel like a lot of survivors have a hard time disconnecting, especially when they have children, because it's like you can't get too comfortable. Mm-hmm. And and that's because you have the fear that the person is going to come after you and hurt you or hurt your children. Or threaten me or lose my child or things like that. There was so much that was going on. So what what ended up happening shortly after that? I mean, you've walked me through your journey before, but I'd like you to share with all the listeners basically what happened with the next few months concerning your son. My son was a year and a half going school, paralegal. Life was looking good. I was the happiest I ever went. I went through trauma therapy. I started, I was doing domestic violence therapy, mm-hmm. but then I showed signs of sexual trauma. I dyed my hair blonde and I did that for me. But then my ex saw a photo of it, made a very, very disgusting comment. And I went into the bathroom and I just started scrubbing myself. And my mom found me. And that's when I talked to my counselor and I got in touch with a sexual assault agency where I was able to start more in-depth therapy that I needed. So I did that in between. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to be a paralegal. Things are good. So in a relationship, things are good. But then there was a lot of like, he came back into my life and there were threats again and there were contracts being signed and things like that. But I never once acted on anything. And then... Sorry, he came back into your life and there was contracts being signed? What, what do you mean by that? He was always trying to make me sign over my rights, but making it seem like it was me because I was so scared and okay. knew I was scared. So he would come to Toronto, he would fly in and see you? See my son, but it was supervised. Okay. And like, or he would message me and try certain things. Cause like when I was like with him, there were like certain contracts he would try to make me sign that like, if I tried to leave him, I would be on the streets with nothing. Like I could not fight for support to support myself, like things like that. But then they were not legal documents because no lawyer judge would ever think that someone would willingly want to do what he yeah. was making me sign. Yes. And yes. it was not notarized by a lawyer or nothing. It was literally him typing it up on a word document yeah. and me just signing it. So that continued on. And then okay. I found myself homeless. Um, my parents couldn't understood because I kept a lot hidden from them, not because I wanted to, but because I needed to protect them. Okay. I need to protect myself. I need to protect my son. And I just share a lot about what I really experienced. They thought it was domestic violence, right? But they didn't realize the intricacies that it that really goes into it. And then I found myself having my son taken from me. And how did that happen? I became homeless. Because oh, because my- you were homeless. Okay. Yeah. Um, I was homeless. And it was such an, um, my relationship broke down with the person I was briefly seeing. My whole world came apart and my son got taken. But there are different types of apprehension. So my apprehension was he still had his normal life with my parents. Like nothing in his life changed except that I was not living with him. And I'm so grateful for that looking back because his life didn't change a lot, except mommy wasn't putting him to bed. He was also 
just one and a half. That was very hard for me. And I don't often talk about it, but I realize a lot of women go through this. And this is where I get emotional because I know I'm so lucky. Um, I have the most amazing judge in the world who kind of read between the lines. And she knew I wouldn't fight for my child as hard as I did if I didn't want him because I fought hard. Like when you go through the court system, they, there's allegations back and forth. And my whole time from my son was born to this time, even to this day, I always try to be the best parent I could be. When he was trying to say she's not a great parent, I was taking parenting courses in the community, doing what I could to show that I'm a capable parent. When he was trying to do my mental health, I got a psychiatric evaluation and that came back fine. They just said I had post-traumatic stress, but I didn't need any medication. Yeah. So the judge knew that I fought so hard that something didn't add up. And all she wanted me to do was find a stable place to live. And I have an amazing support um, who helped me with my trauma therapy, the sexual assault center in Halton um, that helped me find a transitional housing unit that helped human trafficking survivors. And um, I was able to bring my son back. I was oh, able to okay. live with my son there for yeah. about two months. It had to be supervised. Like when I mean supervised, it was kind of a, like, there was a counselor on site at all times, but I had independent living. Okay. Like own kitchen, own like It was not that bad. Okay. Um, and then I lived there for about two months when I got my son back. And then I was able to get my own place on my own with my son and have a fresh stuff. That's amazing. In hindsight, and actually, maybe you can talk to us a little bit about, you've been through a lot of intensive therapy, I can tell, and I'm sure you're still getting it. But um, at this point, I mean... How did you transition to a career? How did you make this a career for yourself? It started off as simple as writing. Like I, a lot, my therapist said journal. I couldn't journal. And I know a lot of survivors can't journal because it brings up too much. So I was trying to like do that in a different type of light by like writing about positive parenting experiences. And then I was posting it on Instagram. So it was kind of like, sharing ways and like things like that. I remember sharing how I talked about how I gave my son the name Aaron. And then they started saying, wow, you actually have a lot going for you. You can start helping other survivors because you've been through the system. You've dealt with CAS. You've dealt with therapy support. Why don't you, like, you can start advocating for survivors. Yeah. So a lot of people, but then it also was like, well, I'm going to have to bring out this level of vulnerability. Of course. And am I ready to do it? And I'm like, you know what? I'm ready to do it because living in that transitional housing unit, you're around a lot of people. And a lot of people I have seen, like I lived in Hamilton for a bit and I went to the libraries and my son did story time. Like I bonded with my son for two months. And I met a lot of women who come from different walks of life. And coming back a year and a half later, there are a couple women who I know who resulted to suicide. Okay. Because they never got that. They never had that hope. They never had people advocate for them. And that's why I'm like, I think I can do this. I know I can help survivors who've been through similar, who have hit rock bottom. From the outside, it doesn't look like people think it's confusing, but there's layers. When you start unpeeling the layers, you start to see, wow, there's a history of trauma. This woman is really in survival mode. She really needs to get out of survival mode. Let's stop judging. Let's start understanding. 
That's excellent. And so that's why you started to do this. And it sounds like it was part of your own healing journey as well, because you've impacted probably so, so many women now. Can you talk to us a little bit about specifically who you represent now? You're saying that you're on a board as well. What kind of work are you doing on a daily basis right now? So I'm at the very start of my journey and I'm actually going back to school to continue. I want to get enough qualification because I may have the experience, but I don't have a lot of the professional qualifications. Mm-hmm. So I'm doing the Women and Children's Advocacy Program at George Brown in September. Excellent. But I'm on um, Halton Collaborative Board Against Human Trafficking as a survivor consultant. So I'm just on a board with a bunch of different service providers, and it's the start of my career. And it's really exciting. Mm, (laughs) Congratulations. Thank you. I'm so happy about it. It's been like stunning just hearing other different people talk like different service providers and try to help them bring more education and awareness of survivors and see how we can help them as a whole. So like like police and women's shelters and children's services all come together and try to get a better understanding of human trafficking and what they can do to support survivors. Can you talk a little bit about human trafficking in GTA or perhaps in Halton? Do you have any statistics or any insight you can give us about how common this really is? Halton has the highest, one of the highest rates of human trafficking. In Canada or? Ontario, for oh, sure. Ontario. Ontario. Okay. Yeah. It, Halton has a high rate because there's a lot of wealthy businesses. What a lot of people don't understand is human trafficking. A lot of people think it's sex trafficking, which yeah. it is. But labor trafficking is also on the rise. This is how I realized that I used to be very ignorant. And this is when listening to other people have really humbled me because I'll never forget having a presentation, listening to a presentation, being on the board. And I see panhandlers. I've noticed in Burlington, there's a lot more panhandlers. And I'm noticing them drive off in lavish cars. And my first thought is, well, they must have money. What I realized with the presentation is a lot of these people are being labor trafficked and whatever money they collect goes to somebody else who's driving the cars and they're forced to live in these basements with a bunch of other people and panhandles to collect money because what people don't realize is a lot of Canadian visa places overseas are not government operated. So Canada does not monitor them to make sure. So it may look like a real visa document, but it's not. And they're coming here under false priests and they don't um, they don't know where to ask for help they don't know what's wrong and a lot of these people these traffickers are threatening their families overseas mm-hmm. who they were trying to bring back money for so that really humbled me because I was very ignorant I would see them drive off in cars or hear that stuff and like well they have money why did they need to panhandle like like they must have a lot of money but the reality is most of them are being trafficked I see. And this is something that's really important for our listeners to know. For those that are global, we are based out of Toronto, Canada. But for those that are local, I know that it's really hard for us to believe as Canadians that this is happening in our own backyards because we see in the media that it's happening all over the world, that, you know, human trafficking is happening in other areas like Asia or parts of Europe. It's very hard for us to accept that it's happening in our own backyard. 
yards and that it could happen to somebody like yourself who's basically born and educated in, in Canada. So it's really important for us to get the word out about that. And I do want to share um, as part of this podcast, we will be providing your information in the description and any other information that you can provide us in terms of statistics and places people can go for help. Uh, within the GTA. Um, and if you know of any global agencies that help people who are involved in human trafficking, please help provide that as well, because I think it's a super important topic that we should be talking about more often. And from what I know, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, majority of the the, the gender that's being human trafficked the most is females. That's correct. And a lot of them, like you said, are born and raised in Canada. And they, a lot of them are like high schoolers. The highest percentage is between the ages of 15 to 24. They prey on the vulnerable. And I'll be the first to admit, I was vulnerable. If I had a career, if I had better support, I would have not found myself in that position. And that's okay to accept. Yeah. Because I was young. And I did not have the resources or the life experience or the stability I needed to be like, after that first night, go. That's what they do. They prey on the vulnerable. And teens are vulnerable. Preteens are vulnerable. I'm not out of the ordinary. A lot of teenagers wanted to be loved and accepted. I may not have come from a broken home like you may not think, but I was a very broken girl. Yeah, yeah. And that and that's just because of other issues and other traumas mm-hmm. that you experienced as you've described growing up. So um, I do want to thank you so much for joining us today, Brianna. And before we sign off, I do ask all of the participants in our podcast, if there's anybody that they want to think of or honor who is not a survivor like you, is there anybody out there that you'd like to recognize or a group of people you'd like to recognize? I would like to recognize there's a couple women who I don't feel comfortable sharing their names because of they course. have children out there. Of course. But they were trafficked, had their children apprehended, and resulted in suicide because they lost hope and faith in getting their children back. So I want to remember the survivors who, human trafficking survivors who have taken their own life because they couldn't get that support and that light at the end of the tunnel that they so badly needed. Thank you so much, Brianna. That's really touching. Uh, we're so happy that you are a survivor and that you're thriving and you are going to make an imprint on those whose lives you touch moving forward. I appreciate you sharing your story. Thank you so much. It's an honor being on this podcast and I hope I can help other survivors. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Calm After the Storm, Survivorship and Other Stories. Today's episode was brought to you by 15minutesaday.ca. We look forward to hearing from you again. Feel free to leave comments and suggestions in the message area below or to reach out to our team if you feel that you are a good candidate for appearing on Calm After the Storm.